please help me welcome Tom Corcoran back to our stage. Um, just to review where we've been again, the, we talked about our own story of being frustrated uh, with, with the way things were going. Uh, and for us, really, kind of revitalization of our church came in a couple of ways. One, just remembering what the church, why the church exists. The church exists to make disciples. And I don't think we can ever say that too much. Because uh, when we lose our why, we lose our way. So we need to constantly come back and what we're doing. Is it helping to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Is it doing what God has called us to do? What Jesus commissioned us to do? Um, so then we talked about three strategies we've learned by looking at... Um, Saddleback and some of the other evangelical churches that we needed uh, think about church from the unchurched pers people's perspective uh, and so that's what we talked about earlier uh, talking about for us it's Tim again we really encourage you to find that person in your, we, uh, in your community I know, I know it's going to look very different than our Tim um, and some questions in our field guide to help you do that so sec now we're at that strategy of prioritizing the weekend or prioritizing the Lord's Day however you want to say that um, we, want, we want to put energy and resources into the weekend mass and programs that surround it. So that's what we're going to take this next uh, bit of time before lunch to do. Sorry, let me put this water bottle down. All right, so that, again, as a church, we are dealing with people's leisure time, right? If you work at a church, it's why you, you know, it's not a nine-to-five job. You work weekends. You work weeknights. If you volunteer at the church, it's why you're there on weekends and weeknights, because you got a day job, and you got to take care of that, and you got to take care of your family. Just real quick, show of hands, how many people here are volunteer church? You're here, and you're volunteer. Oh, that's awesome. Just uh, let me clap for you guys. It's <laughs> really great. You guys, you guys are, are the heroes and, uh, that, that make the church run. So... Um, so anyway, we're dealing with people's leisure time. Um, and so it's really the wisest, uh, a wiser investment of our time as a church. Uh, we talked about, because you're never going to get as many people on the weekday as you're going to get on the weekend. Uh, again, just because of the way people are, people's time works. You know, we talked about those family-friendly Fridays, even weekends don't get as many people. We talked about those family-friendly Fridays at the beginning. And we ran that program for about five or six years, and we busted it. I mean, we worked really hard. Eventually, it swelled, again, to probably about 600 people coming on a, on a Friday night. In the meantime, our weekend mass would probably have about 1,400, 1,500 people. And we weren't putting nearly the time and energy and resources into the weekend mass as we were those family-friendly Fridays. And so the greater impact was on the weekends, and we were missing that. Um, Again, we're dealing with people's leisure time. And if you think about it, um, we like to think about it, it's kind of like a bank account. When, when the people who are the church people, when they come and, and we use that time well, when we, we honor their time by bringing our very best efforts, again, as people who are, are pastors and, and staff at a church, when, when we honor that time, we invest in that account. So later we're going to talk about challenging church people. But... The way we're, it's easy to challenge the people in the pews to get involved and give more of their lives to church is that we honor the hour that we've given them, we, that they give us. And so when they come on an hour and we, we give them something relevant, we give them relevant, relevant homily, when they come and have a good experience, they're gonna, and we ask them, hey, give us more of your time, they're going to be willing to give more of their time because we've already honored the time giving them. We've already built up that bank account. Here's something else to, to acknowledge is that for people who come to weekend mass, you know, most people, that's, that's like kind of entry level, right? They come for mass once a week, hopefully. Sometimes it's like twice a month they come for an hour. And what we need to understand is that for them, that is their church. That is their church. Their whole conception of church is based on that one hour come to mass. That again. Their whole image and vision of church is based on that one hour they come to Mass. And so, as, again, dedicated tiers, dedicated church staff people, right? we know, we see all the rest of it. 
We see the larger picture, but they don't. And in order to draw them back into more and deeper involvement in Christ's church, we need to honor that hour they give us. It's also very important, so it's really important in trying to get people on the discipleship path. The weekend's also important because it's about, again, as we talked about, reaching Tim. That if they have a bad experience, if, if Tim comes and it's a bad experience, if it's boring and bad and irrelevant to his life, as our church was for many years, they're not going to come back. They're going to assume we don't have anything to say to them. Um, I use the example of a restaurant. You go to a restaurant for good food and good service and a good environment. But if you go to a church and it's, I mean, if you go to a restaurant and the food is terrible, you know, the wait staff is rude to you, the cutlery is dirty, you really don't care how well they do their accounting. You're not going back to that restaurant. And so if we, if we don't get the weekend mass right, it doesn't matter how well we do other things. People are not coming back. The unchurched are not going to come back. Um, and if it's a boring and bad and irrelevant experience, they're going to think the church is boring and bad and irrelevant. And worse, they're going to think that God is boring and irrelevant. And we just have to acknowledge this, is that when it comes to reaching the unchurched people, right, that the Eucharist is not enough. Right? If the Eucharist was enough to reach our communities, then every Catholic church in this country would be filled. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that Jesus is not enough. Of course Jesus is enough. But maybe what Jesus is doing is that he wants us to bring our efforts and our energy. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says this. He says, I am making up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Nothing, of course. Nothing except what he chooses to leave room for us to add our sufferings to and to use our sufferings in the world and to our for our own sanctification. Well, maybe when it comes to the Mass, it's the same thing. Of course, the Eucharist is enough, but Jesus leaves room for us to show the value of the Eucharist. So it's our, up to our efforts to show the value of the Eucharist. And so we think there's three major pillars that show the value of the Eucharist. Our music, message, and ministers. So I'll go over those three. Music, message, and ministers. So focusing on the weekend from means it's about the music. The weekend experience should be a form of transportation, taking the participant on an emotional, intellectual, and ultimately a spiritual journey to the higher things of God. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Sing to the, Sing to the Lord says this, God has bestowed upon his people the gift of song. God dwells within each human person in the place where music takes its source. Indeed, God, the giver of song, is present whenever his people sing his praises. Deep within our being, music is a way for God to lead us to the realm of higher things. Music can take us to the realm of higher things in a way nothing else can. What did St. Augustine say? St. Augustine said music, singing is praying twice. We like to say this, that music is the water at once the experience sails, or if not well done, sinks. Music do, does what words alone cannot do. It's capable of expressing a dimension of meaning and feeling that words cannot convey. And more than any element of the weekend's church experience, it's the music that can touch and it can touch and change people's hearts for better or for worse. Historically at Nativity, Music was a huge problem. Huge problem. As typical in many places, the program included some musical options. Three weekend masses were designed as organ and cantor. One had a choir. One had folk music. And one was blessedly silent. Um, the folk mass was far and away the more popular than the other musical choices, perhaps because it was the easiest to listen to and the easiest to tune out. The group, the group tried their best, but they struggled. Their presentation was flawed, and their music was dated and uninteresting. And at other masses, the music was worse. Far, far 
worse. Many of the choir members were more convinced of their skills. Many of the choir members were more convinced of their skills than they had reason to be. And their accumulated sound was grievous. Most of the cantors were prima donnas in clear performance mode. The organist was a wonderful person who struggled mightily with a poorly designed organ, and she was a wonderful person, but she was not a wonderful organist. One of the past, the priests that used to help say mass would say she played like she had boxing gloves on. <laughs> Traditional hymns, as well as more recent additions to the compendium of sacred music, were simply slaughtered week after week. And, and, and this, no one sang. We really mean no one. If you came and you sang, we knew you were a visitor. <laughs> and we stared at you till you shut up or went away. Not surprisingly, on weekends, the most popular mass was the one, early one, without any music. Uh, so early on, uh, we had a town meeting to listen to the range of concerns we inherited. Now, it actually happened before my time, so I, can, I didn't have to experience this. But Father Michael says that while most people were generally apathetic towards the parish, um, in fact, as we said, the number one reason people came to our church was because we had convenient parking, as we talk about in the book. People were apathetic towards the parish, the evening turned into a virtual rock over bitter complaint about the music. And Father Michael said he had to agree with them. In fact, they were right. In fact, we wouldn't have come to the parish if we weren't paid to be there. We had terrible music. And it made the weekend experience terrible. In fact, it made people angry. People would leave the church angry over our music. Music's supposed to take people to the higher things, and instead it was just making people angry. So you want, to know about, you want to know what we did about the problem? How we solved it? We did absolutely nothing. We didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. That is, if you don't count the people as anybody. Music has the greatest potential to reach It has the greatest potential to reach people's hearts. It's often the most difficult one to get right. And because it's such a struggle, it's often that's why people just give up and settle for mediocre or even pure music. As communities, we cannot do that. We need to keep investing our time and energy until we get it right or until we get it on the right track. And again, it's done, never completely finished, but we need to get it on the right track. So, Here's what we have learned. We didn't just let the music situation go. We have learned some things over the years about music. And we say this. Again, we just talk about invest in music. Uh, so let's, let's, how do you invest in music? Number one, um, invest through prayer and fasting. Uh, th and this kind of sounds very churchy, right? Okay, you need to pray and fast. We say pray and fast for music. The reality is we think this has such an ability to move people's hearts, to make an impact on people, to change people's lives. We really do believe it's a spiritual battle. Evil one fights us to try to get this right. Um, and so you have to invest through prayer and fasting, especially, again, if it's off track. I mean, that's how music, prayer, music changed at our church. Uh, we were trying to get, we had a 5.30 Sunday night mass, which we kind of was really the impetus for all the changes we brought into our church, but we were trying to get the right music, the music, kind of music we wanted, and we could not find anyone to play it. And so for about nine months, we prayed and fasted until God sent the right person. And again, music's a spiritual battle because of the incredible power to move people's hearts. And if you don't acknowledge the spiritual component to this and conflict, you'll never make progress on it. Um, you know, if we don't fight the battle through prayer and fasting, and in other ways, we'll talk about in a minute, but we'll never, make, we'll never make it to the promised land, so to speak, of music. You know, the Israelites never get to the promised land because, remember, the reason they don't get there is because they refuse to battle and fight. So we have to engage in the battle, the spiritual battle, when it comes to music. Second, we'd say this, invest, a couple are going to come up here, but first of all, I'd say invest in the right people. When it comes to great music, we need great people. We need the right people kind of really two major qualifications to be the right person. First, you have to have skill. 
You have to actually be able to play music. Desire isn't enough. People have to have skill and ability. Um, Psalm says this, I think it's Psalm 33, says, sing a new song to the Lord, play skillfully. Play skillfully to the, to the different musicians. Right? God wants skillful music. We say this, that when it comes to skill and excellence, it honors God and inspires people. Right? But investing in the right people, you know, so the skill, the second part, though, is having the right heart. That it's not about a performance, it's not about the prima donna, or about me getting to be up on stage and be in front of other people. And it's actually kind of ironic, many times in the churches, we have people who are not skilled and they have the wrong heart. They just want to be in front of people, right? They don't have either, right? And I think sometimes the heart can compensate for the skill, but we, we, we do need both. And that, it can bring the skill up, because if you love worshiping God enough, you, you, you'll improve your skill. Some people just want to be in front of people. They don't have skill or the right heart, right? So we want people who have the right skill and the right heart. The, the point is to lead people to worshiping God. And if you're thinking about right now, that's really hard to find. How do you find somebody who has skill and the right heart? Well, refer back to the first one. Pray and fast for music. Right? Ask God to bring those people into our, our thing, uh, into, our, into our parish. Um, again, so often the problem is we can't find the right people because we're allowing the wrong people to stay in those positions with music. Uh, a few years ago, we, we, we were trying, we invited a few to come to our church. And it was kind of like a small shop that we did. And so this one morning we were talking about music and we had one of our music leaders come in and talk about music and we had a, 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 a pastor there, um, actually a, a priest there, Father Frank. I'll call him, I was going to hide his name but oh well, too late now, Father Frank, hopefully you don't know. So anyway, Father Frank um, comes up to me, or Father Frank, I just look at lunch and he's like, he's just shaking his head. I say, Father Frank, what's, what's going on? What are you thinking? He's like, you're killing me with the music. I'm like, all right, what do you mean you're killing you with music? He's like, well, there's this woman. She's a cantor at our church, and she's a volunteer, and she, she can't sing. In fact, it's so bad, one of their major givers to our church came up to me and said, Father Frank, how much are you paying her to sing on the weekends? I said, I'll, I'll volunteer. And this guy who was a donor said, I will pay her not to sing on, at the church. But you could just see all the angst he had about, oh my gosh, how do I move this person out? I know she can't sing. I know he's right. And so if we want the right people, we need to move out the wrong people. We need to invest uh, in the right people. And so we say invest resources. So for us at the parish, one of the ways we do that is we do invest a lot of money in our music ministry. Um, you know, it, this doesn't happen so much anymore, but we, especially when we were first starting out, we invested... Our, our finances, and, and such a bi- it was such a big part of our budget, or seemed such a bit that sometimes people in our financial council would challenge us on it. And we said, yeah, we know. But we need to invest in music. Now, as our bu- budget's grown, it's actually become a smaller part of our budget, but we would say, if you can, as a parish, invest financial resources in your music. And then another way to do the other resources is just invest relationally. Right? You know, um, Invest time and energy in the people who are leading music in your church. Make sure they are growing. Make sure that they know they're a part of the team. They're not just a silo ministry that's out here to come in and play the music. That No, they're really a part of the whole mission of the church to go and make disciples. So invest relationally. And then we say this. Uh, invest thoughtfully. Invest thoughtfully. Careful thought needs to be given to how the music is heard by your target audience, especially the unchurched. All right, again... Catholic churches, we tend to play church music for church people. But what kind of music do the people in your community listen to who aren't going to church? And how does that translate into sacred music or worship in your setting? Again, at Nativity, we're trying to reach Timonium Tim, the guy in our community who hasn't been to church in a long time. And we want Tim to feel comfortable with our music. And Tim isn't listening to organ music in the car on his way to work. Um, and oddly enough, this came as a huge revelation to us. It took us a long time to find music that we like, that beyond the music we like, when a style finds Tim attractive. Now for us, the, the, the band was warming up here a little bit earlier, um, we play music kind of like contemporary praise and worship music. So play things like Hillsong, that was the Ocean Song, or, or Matt Redman, or Lincoln Brewster, or Chris Tomlin. But we don't suggest any style of music. 
We just strongly advise that you give a lot of to the kind of music that's going to connect with your community. We'd also strongly advise choosing one style and sticking with it. Uh, we had just found that the menu of options was unsustainable. It, it was just so difficult to, to transition between music. It was so difficult for us um, so to, to, to transition. It tended to break people into different pews. I have, my, you know, into different groups. We're, as a church, we're trying to bring people together. We're trying to people who come from all different places and unite them. When there's the same music, it's easier to get people on the same page. Um, so we would suggest one style. Multiple styles leads to greater complexity, and music is different, difficult enough. You want to make it as simple as possible. Uh, music and singing play a tremendous important role, again, in the history of God's people. Over and over again we sing, see that. The Psalms exhort us to sing. You know, the, the Israelites, after they were delivered from slavery, they sang to God. Jesus, at the Last Supper, went out, we're told, and sang hymns uh, in the... In the uh, sang songs and sang the psalms in the, in the, garden, uh, in the garden, garden of Olives. The book of Kings tells us that the prophet Elisha at one point was about to, to, to give a prophecy, prophesy. There's a problem. And so they, they bring in Elisha and ask him to kind of pray to God. And what, is, what does Elisha say? He says, now bring me a minstrel. The Israelites are about to fight this huge battle. And Elisha says, bring me a minstrel. But we're told that when the minstrel was brought in, the hand of God came upon Elisha and he prayed and they brought victory to that battle. So music and service to God can be a grace and can be grace filled and powerfully transformative for a community. But again, it doesn't come without going back to that first thing, a spiritual battle. It will not just happen by accident. We have to fight for it. We have to invest in it. So second, we say it's about the music and then we say it's about the message, the message. So from us, the message is what we call the weekend homily. And so the message is the weekend homily. Um, words are powerful, right? And I think as people who deal with words, as someone who speaks publicly, there's times we, and as someone who writes, sometimes you struggle with this to understand this. But words are really powerful. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of, of the tongue. The words of God are even more powerful. As Hebrews 4.12 says, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, God created the world by speaking it. By saying, let there be and existed. And if you reflect on your own spiritual journey, you can think of a time when a homily or a teaching from a teacher, powerfully impacted and changed your life. You know, maybe for you, it was a, uh, your concept of God. And that you thought of God, and, and kind of in the testimonies, I think were said this, so that you thought of God as the kind of cosmic cop in the sky, waiting for you to do something wrong. And then through a teaching or through someone's words, that you came to understand, no, God's not a cosmic cop. God is your heavenly Father who loves you. Maybe for you it was on a moral issue. That you thought the church was dead wrong. It was completely wrong. And then someone took the time to explain it to you. Or maybe you heard it in a homily or a teaching and you said, oh my gosh, now I see the why behind that. I understand the church's perspective. And you had a total change of attitude about it. You know, maybe for you, you know, for me personally, it's when it comes to money and finances that I've had a, a total change in attitude. Growing up, uh, I went to Catholic school, but I don't ever remember hearing anybody talk about money. It just really wasn't mentioned all that often, or what God said about it, or what the church said about it. And so, growing up, I, I, I think I grew up pretty greedy, you know, um, and I was also not very good at handling money, because I didn't know God's way of handling money. So when I graduated college, I had a ton of debt. I had student loans, I, had a, uh, I bought a car, so I had a car loan after, after college, and then I had a credit card debt. So I had tons of debt. And again, I gave nothing to the church. I remember we were having a capital campaign and right after I began at Nativity and Father Michael said, all right, you know, you have to give to this church. And I said, with what you pay me? No, I didn't, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> I didn't say that. I thought it, I didn't say it. Um, no. Um, so in any case, um, 
no, I'm like, I have to give? I'm like, I already give my time. Why, why should I give? He's like, no, you have to give to this capital campaign. So I was greedy. I didn't give anything to God. And then I began hearing different preachers talk about money and what God says about money. And I began hearing things like, you cannot be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and be lost in your finances. And then I heard this passage from Malachi chapter 3, 6 to 10, where God talked about, you know, how you're robbing him if you don't give the tithe. And he says, bring the full tithe into, your store, into my storehouse and see if I will not pour blessing upon you. <clears throat> and I heard these passages and I heard these words of scripture and I heard God's word and it, it impacted me. And I began tithing and, and with my wife. And, and so it totally turned my finances around from obeying what God said. So if you, if you think about your life, there are times when people's words have totally changed the direction of your life. Words are powerful, and the word of God is even more powerful. Um, <clears throat> it's important, it's also the homily of the message, opportunity, is a great opportunity to show the relevance of God's word. That every week, the homily is forming people's attitudes towards scripture. And it's an opportunity for people to go deeper into scripture and lead people to a respect and reverence. Um, for those of you who do get to preach on the weekend, if you're deacons and pastors and priests, it's an opportunity to provide spiritual direction to a large group of people at a time. Think about it. You know, if you sit down and give counsel or direction to one person in an hour, you've impacted one person. On the flip side, if you work, use that same time, you're able to, give to work on your homily. You're able to give spiritual direction to hundreds, maybe even thousands of people, right? And, and so much of the homily is about giving spiritual direction. Um, I, I love what Paul talks about in, in Acts 20. He's about to leave, um, and uh, the, he's, leading, he's leaving to go to Jerusalem, and he brings together the elders of Ephesus, and he says, you know, I leave with a clear conscience because I did not shrink from sharing the full counsel of God. The homily is the opportunity to share the full counsel of God. For the unconnected, it's how they are fed. I can't tell you how many times we would go to a church, uh, or we would go to some of these other churches like Saddleback or Willow Creek, and we'd run into former Catholics. And we would say, you know, what happened? Why did you leave the church? And they said, you know what, I just felt like I wasn't being fed. And of course they were being fed on the Eucharist, but they weren't being fed on God's word, so they left. And finally, we'd say this, that the homily is the opportunity to breathe life into dead areas of the parish. Uh, you know, this past week, just yesterday, right? Uh, today's Monday, right? I've lost what day it is. Today's Monday, right? Yeah, just yesterday, right? The reading for that first reading from Ezekiel, right? Is that about God opening the graves. But right before, that's the whole, vi the vi it's from the, the, the passage about the valley of God gives Ezekiel this uh, vision. He leads him out to the valley of dry, dead bones. And God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, look at these dry, dead bones. Can they come back to life? Ezekiel says, I don't know, God. God, you're God. You tell me. Can they come back to life? And God says to Ezekiel, speak to those dry, dead bones. Prophesy to those dry, dead bones. And so God, Ezekiel begins to prophesy to those dry, dead bones. And he begins to speak the word of God to them. And we're told that bones begin to rattle. And then they begin to come together. And sinews come upon them and flesh comes upon them. You know, that's, that's God giving us an image, a vision of what can happen when we speak God's word to God's people. The dead areas of the parish can come back to life. And I would say the two places we have seen this so, uh, so, so clearly is number one, in the parish finances. We've grown because Father Michael will talk about what God's word says about money. And when it comes to volunteers and preaching to people what God says about serving in the church. So the weekend's about three pillars. Music, message, and then we say the ministers. The ministers. For us, uh, the ministers we say are, kinda, are the volunteers in our church. So a lot of you that are here, we'd say you are the volunteer ministers. Uh, we say this, it creates the there, there. Said about Oakland, California, there's no there, there, where our ministers, they create the sense of excitement. Um, and we, we say that this, that there's kind of three major pillars of people um, that 
are making up our weekend experience. So we have our host ministers, which is our parking, our greeters, and our, our host team members. So let me walk you through that a little bit. So the first major team is our, our host minister, our, our hospitality ministers. That begins with parking ministers. So at our church, we are in a suburban church, so people tend to bring cars with them when they come to church. And so the first experience they have at Nativity is on the parking lot. And so our parking ministers are there to greet people, to smile, to show them a parking spot, to point it out. They don't like do valet parking or anything like that. But the first experience people have coming to church is our parking ministers, and it's setting the tone for the rest of their experience at church. So then as you, as you park, people park, they come up to the door, we have greeters at the door, many of our parishes have that, and someone's just there to smile and, and, and greet them, say welcome, thanks, glad you came today, open the door for them. And then as you go into the church, we have our host ministers. Um, and our host ministers, they greet, pe- you know, they greet people as well, they help them find the seat, they take up the collection. I mean, the host ministers do kind of the typical, you know, what the traditional usher role. We found we had to call them host ministers because in our church, uh, usher had come to stand for a grumpy old man that stares on you, at you when you come into church. So we rebrand them host ministers. Um, and then of a couple other hospitality ministers we have is our information desk, which gives information, and then our cafe, so people are able to stick around after mass, have a cup of coffee, have a donut, and enjoy some fellowship after mass. So that's our, our one major team, is a hospitality. And, and all those, what those hospitality ministries are doing are just creating and sending a message. You know, they're sending a message first all to Tim. As we talked about earlier, Tim has a lot of baggage. Tim doesn't think he's going to be welcomed in church. Tim thinks he might be struck by lightning. Tim thinks he's being judged when he comes in. But what the hospitality ministers are doing is they're lowering the defenses, lowering Tim's defenses so the word of God can pierce his heart. And also conveying to Tim, wow, this place is organized. This place is expecting me, right? Expecting guests at your place, at your house. You act completely different about your house, don't you? Right? Our, our hospitality ministers means we are expecting guests come. We're expecting Tim to show up on Sunday. So that, that's one of our major teams. Our second major team of volunteer ministers is our children's ministry. Our children's ministry. And I like to say when it comes to children's ministry, it's really the, the low-hanging fruit of the church. That there's such an opportunity to reach people when they have young children. Uh, and for a couple different reasons. Number one, when you, when you become a parent, when you become a father or mother, that you be, you've come to realize how much more difficult it is to be a parent. I, I remember before I, I had kids, I'd be out and about, and I'd see uh, a parent you know, yelling at their child, and I shake my head and I think, what a terrible parent. Now if I'm out and I'm at the supermarket or running errands and I see a parent yelling at a child, I shake my head and think, I've been there. I was a much better father before I had kids. So parents, so, um, parents with young children, they, they are understanding how difficult a role it is to be a father, to be a mother. And so we can partner with them, and they're looking for help. They're looking for authority. They're looking for an authority over and above themselves, which means often they come to look at God. They come to look at his church. And they're not necessarily looking for more, you know, they might not be looking for faith. They might just be looking for religion. But we can leverage that, when they, that they come looking for religion, and we can bring them along a faith journey. Another reason why I think children's ministry is such a low-hanging fruit is because children are more evangelical. Children are more willing to share their faith. Right? We, um, they're not, a, you know, as adults, we're thinking, okay, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to put myself out there. Children have no such inhibitions. Um, you know, our, our director of, of, of finances is a guy named Brandon, and Brandon talks about how his daughter invited their kindergartner, their kinder, her kindergarten teacher, to come to church. You know, she, she told about that. And she was talking so much about church every Monday, she had to come and, and check it out. You know, so little kids don't have those inhibitions. Um, and so there's really just a, a real opportunity. Uh, 
Also, when it comes to children's programs, we had a former minister, a former staff person who used to say this, you do something for me, and you do something for my kid. And, and for those parents, you know that. If any organization can, can make my kids do something for my kids, where my kids are happy and they want to be a part of it, that just fills our hearts up so much. And so we score this double victory when I get our children's programs right. Um, and so uh, for us, let me just explain to you how we do this on a weekend and how we try to get it right. Um, our children's ministry is made up of our kids' zone, our all-stars, and time travelers. So these are programs we have every single mass uh, throughout the weekend. And let me explain for you how it works in my family. So um, as mentioned earlier, I have seven kids, uh, five boys, two girls. So let me just show you how we, how we go to Mass. So we usually will go to Mass Sunday at noon right now. And so um, my oldest is 15. I have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, 11-year-old. They all just come to Mass with us, and they, they come through the whole, they, they, they are with us and attend Mass with us. My, uh, I have a 9-year-old daughter, Elsa, and a 7-year-old, uh, Kefa. And so they come to Mass, and they go to our program called Time Travelers, which is our Children's Liturgy of the Word program. So... They come to Mass, I'm going to come to the liturgy right before the first reading, we, we play a little video, All the, they leave with the kids there. Then they come back for the liturgy of the Eucharist. And then I have a four-year-old, Caleb, and a two-year-old daughter, Lydia. Caleb goes to All Stars, and we drop him off at the beginning of Mass, and he's there for that whole hour. And Lydia goes to Kids Zone, which is our program for three and under. So All Stars is four to six, Kids Zone is three and under. And Lydia, Lydia goes to three and under, and there, she's there for the whole hour. And it's not just it's, it's forming kids in their faith. Telling them to know God on. And what that, those, these children's programs do, allow my wife, Mia, and I to go to Mass, to worship, to sing, to praise God, and just kind of be refreshed, listen to Father White's homily, and be refreshed, rather than chasing the kids down throughout Mass. Um, so I just want to, the weekend experiences on music, message and ministers. I want to read a letter to you that we got a while back that just kind of everything about why the volunteer ministers are so important. This was written by a guy named Josh and he wrote this. Dear Nativity, I just want to thank everyone at the church for being so welcoming and friendly to our family. For us, the barrier that Nativity has removed is the frustration we've experienced with having our three children attend Mass with us. We had taken many months off from attending any church because we had become so frustrated, continually trying to keep our children quiet or occupied while getting nothing, nothing out of it at all except irritated with one another. Someone recommended nativity, so we gave it a try. On our first visit, a very friendly person led us around and showed us where we could take our children. She was welcoming and helpful, and our kids were so comfortable with the experience, they wanted to come back. Every time that we've entered or left church, someone has smiled at us and greeted us, and that means so much. The parking volunteers were helpful, dedicated, and friendly. The hospitality and service, the fellowship, and the incredible organization have convinced us that Christ's presence is alive in this church. Little things are big things. He goes on. The program for our 20-month-old is wonderful and safe. And all-stars for our four- and five-year-old children has helped enrich their church experiences. Thanks to Nativity, my wife and I can now sit as a couple for an hour, worship, sing, and renew our spirits just enough to make it through another crazy week. We look forward to every Sunday now, and we plan to start getting more involved, which I've come to believe is the only way to keep our faith alive. So that was written by a guy named Josh. And uh, Josh was true to his word. He, he got involved. He actually serves as one of our host team members at our 9 o'clock mass. His wife, Megan, actually now works um, part-time on our staff running the Time Travelers program. And it's interesting to read that letter to you today because um, this past week, we just had a, a, a volunteer ministry push. Uh, we asked everybody in our parish to get on, in, on board and serve in some kind of ministry by serving in some of the different ministries I just talked about. And um, this letter was written a while back, and... We just decided to pull it out again and read it this past weekend to our church because it just, it captures so much of what we're trying to do. And I talked to Josh on Saturday night and it was like, you know, I remember writing that letter. Like, first of all, the letter was so good, I'm like, I almost think we sometimes think he really wrote that, right? 
because um, it captures so much what we want to do. But he's like, I remember sitting down, I just, after the second or third time I was here, and, and I write so much different stuff. He's a lawyer, but I, he's amazed at the impact. But then he was just, I just want people to get this. I want people in our church to understand because this is what worked for me. This is what brought me back. It was the volunteers in our church. Um, and I, I'm like, Josh, I wish I had a camera right now just like recording you because just, I wish, and I wish you could have seen the energy and enthusiasm he had about the importance of this. So these little things are big things. If you can get people serving in this, these small, small capacities, it can make a huge difference. All right, I think I'm about at my time right now. Or we want to do a little questions before lunch? Okay. So again, some questions. Um, I have a question. You spoke about getting rid of the undesirables, such as music people or whatever. How does one do that? <laughs> I, you, you know what I'm saying, people that are not fit in the position that they are. How do you go about doing that without losing that person as a parish member? I mean, it can deal with not only musicians, but people that are readers that are maybe not now uh, in a valid marriage, for example. And suddenly, I can't read anymore, so I'm gonna find another church. Well, let me say this, you do run that risk, right? Whenever you challenge somebody, you run the risk of people leaving. Um, but, and that is, it is a definite risk. But, uh, you know, when it comes to our ministries, it's not there for the people. You know, this is unfortunate what happens. People get, they start serving as lectors, Eucharistic ministers, especially around liturgical things, and it becomes about, but it's, you know, it's, it's not about them. It's about God and about leading the people of God to God. Now, I think, obviously, people can be fulfilled. I mean, I think we give our lives to God and God fills us back up, but, right, that heart can go wrong. If the person's heart is right and it's done skillfully, they'll agree with you or they'll come to it. Look, we want to put more skill, a person's skill, and we just don't think this is your gift. And we will want to find a place for you in the church. We want to find a way for you to serve because we want everybody serving in our church. But we don't think this is the right place. Um, and certainly that's done in a conversation. That's not like an email sound out. That's a, that's a one-on-one. Usually for us, there's going to be conflict. We do two-on-one. We make sure there's two people. If the person's heart is right, even that, they might push back at first. But if the person's heart's right and they're doing it for the right reasons, they'll come along board. If their heart's not right, you've given them a chance to search their heart. And, you know, Challenge them that, you know, search your heart on this. But this is where we're going, and we want to encourage you into some other ministry. It takes skill, and you just, you just don't have the right skill right now. Or we, we need people who can play a little, more, little better. And that's not, a, that's not a criticism on who you are. That's just on a talent. Um, could you talk a little bit about your <clears throat> baptism program? I've been Sorry. Putting, can you talk about baptism Baptism? We have a baptism program. I was put in charge of baptisms a couple months ago. I'm okay. a deacon. Um, I can talk a little bit about it. I, I did a little bit a while back, but I don't do very much with it right now. Um, you know, here's what I do know about baptism, and from my experience, is that, I mean, first of all, we have a program. We call it 110. It's taken from Mark 110, where Jesus is, I think it's Mark 110, uh, where Jesus is baptized. It would have to be Mark 110. Um, and so... Uh, we do it at 1 o'clock on Sundays. Ours is a small group atmosphere, which is really important to us as a church. We try to do everything in a small group. Um, and this is what I also think, too. When people have new babies, that um, we want to bring, a lot of times we bring a lot of theology, which some of it needs to be delivered. But what I found in doing baptism prep classes is that new parents that come to it, they don't really want to talk a lot of theology. They have a lot of fears and concerns and, and also joy about being a parent, and that's what they want to do. So um, we try to just kind of weave in, in, in a small group atmosphere, we do put some you know, pre presentation and teaching, but then also just leave room for small group discussion about the babies themselves, because that's what new parents want to do. They want to talk about being parents. And so trying to set up some of the, 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 the teaching, but in that context of what it means to be a parent and what you want for your kids. It's kind of... My experience has been uh, these people are coming back to the church. Yeah, right. So they're uh, not going. They may not be married. I mean, so you got to work from there, and here's an opportunity. You talk about low-hanging fruit. Right. And then I'm going, 
I'm supposed to ask these people to raise their kids Catholic when I give them the sacrament. Right. So, so do that. I'm just saying do that, with the, do that in mind that they're coming back to church for the first time in a long time. And that it is an opportunity. And again, what are their felt needs? Again, their felt need is not to know the theology of baptism. That's our need, and we certainly need to convey that. But if we just hammer them with theology, it's not meeting their felt need. Their felt need, again, and what we, can, we, try to, what we would try to do is, one, connect them to some other people in the church. Hey, there's some other people just like you who just had kids and have all the fears and worries and anxieties and joys that you have, so let's introduce them to each other. Um, do some small group relational things. Um, you know, so for us as a church, then we're also going to point to them what we do. Okay, here's what we offer. If you come to Mass on Sunday, because we're assuming you haven't, because you're just coming back to church, hey, we have a kid zone. You can drop your kid off when they're a little older. And then here are our other children's programs, and here's what we want to do, and here's how we want to serve you as a church. Right? Um, you know, we have small groups for families that are kind of going through, because we want you to walk with some other people. So that's what we would do. We would, say, we would point to them, here's how we want to serve you and walk with you. reach out to people who have disabled children. Disabled because children? The people who don't really fit in. Say, say again, if don't, for us, what we've developed is a thing called the buddy ministry. Um, and I don't know a lot of the details of that, but it's, been, it's really a powerful thing where we have uh, children's ministers and volunteer ministers who, um, I guess I'm thinking more mentally disabled. Or, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm okay. thinking of. All right, like autism, things like that. And so have developed a ministry around that of um, volunteers. They go, they bring them, they sit through the kids of the programs. It's pretty much one-on-one. They're with them the whole time. And um, it's really, it's actually very beautiful because it, it's, and it's, it, that's grown over the last few years. Um, mostly I think we, just, we have a good leader in there who, who had a vision for it and a, and a good volunteer who, who really wanted it to happen. So that's the way we handle it. It's, it's called the buddy ministry and pretty much that means they're buddies, and they one person, it's one-on-one throughout the program, and they try to help them navigate the program, and then if at some point the kids are just getting upset, they'll, they'll take, them, you know, take them out. But again, it's, it's in the context of that relationship, because they have a one-on-one relationship. Thank you. And I'm curious how you transition the children downstairs, how soon the, they can be dropped off, how soon they need to be picked up. And then I'm assuming that the children that come back upstairs do that during the offertory. Um, so I'm curious how the transition takes place. Sorry, sec- say it again. Say the second part again. The second part, how the older kids transition upstairs to participate in the Eucharist. I'm assuming oh. they come back during the offertory. Right. Uh, we don't have a downstairs, so it's just on the same floor. But um, sorry, I'm hair splitting there. It's my personality. Um, so, yeah, we have volunteers who are back there and that, whose job is just to lead the kids back. Um, and to shepherd them back to their seats. Um, well, sorry, what was the, the, I should have said that was the first question. For the, for the time travelers? Um, so for us, it begins, again, right before the first reading. Uh, we send them out, and they come back during the offertory. And so our, we have a pretty long homily. Uh, Father Michael usually preaches somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 minutes. So it winds up being about 30 minutes, about half of Mass they have to be part of that Time Travelers program. Uh, Tom, um, when you go to carnivals, um, you have to be a certain size to ride some of the rides. And I've been at carnivals where, you know, the guy that's running the ride says, come back when you're tall enough. Do you ever come to an experience where, take for example, baptism, where somebody comes and they're not going to church and they want baptism, um, do you ever come to a point where you say, come back when you're tall enough to ride the ride? In other words, come back when the desire is great enough in your heart to give and not just take. Do you, do you ever come to that moment? Um, I, don't, I can't think of one off, offhand. Um. I mean, I think we would lean pretty strong as if people are there and showing up. You know, so for example, one thing we, got, we, we get, get come sometimes happens is like the grandparent will call and say, I want my grandchild baptized, and we say, no. No. I mean, we appreciate that, but they got to call us. They got to show that initiative. Okay. So I guess we try to block that before it happens to us. Um, you know, I think if people are desiring enough to come to baptism, 
um, classes and kind of go through what we're asking them to do and try not to make it hoops to jump through, but here's the process. Um, that's enough, you know. Jesus said, follow me, and then people followed. So, so what if they're not willing to go through that process? Well, then we wouldn't, sure, yeah. Okay. So if, if, if they're not, here's what we do, and, um, and I think someone on the relational basis, if someone's constantly fighting you, but they're going through the process, we have to right. take it on that word. Okay. Might have time for one more, or we have two minutes, or if we want to break. Yeah, that's a great question. So about our children's ministry, that's really a good question. So we do uh, kids' own and all-stars at every single mass. Um, time travels, we don't have Sunday night because we have our middle school program that takes place right after that. We just don't have the space. Um, our, you know, the, the, what I would say to a church when it comes to those children's programs is this. Uh, first of all, make it consistent. A couple things. Make it every, you know, and if you don't do it all the masses, do it at one and do it every single weekend. And then when you build up the volunteer base, do it at the next mass. Um, make it consistent. If people have to guess if it's there, it'll lose momentum. It'll lose steam. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, second, we would say this too with the volunteers. Try to get volunteers that are not young parents. Young parents are in that season. They're struggling enough. So I've heard some places do co-ops, and I'm like, I kind of understand that, but I re we really want to serve the people in that season. That, I mean, it's a really hard place when you have young kids and your career hasn't gotten to a, a place where you're really making a lot of money. It's just a really hard place. So if we're just serving them, we can make a big impact. So we, where we look for volunteers, especially with the young children, is empty nest nesters, you know, moms that their kids are all grown up and gone and they kind of haven't had grandbabies yet and they're kind of missing that and want that stage of life. And then, you know, teenagers, especially teenage girls, want to serve that, that young stage. So... Um, so two things I would say is make it consistent, and you don't have to do it every Mass, but really make it consistent. And then second, um, those volunteers are not young people. What? We do in the summer too. Yep. All right, I think we're at break for lunch. Did you want to? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I can, if there's more questions, I'll keep going. But. That's okay. Thank you, Tom. Please help me thank Tom.